with that, let's pray, and we'll look at our passage for today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, for this time that we have uh, to gather, uh, to study your word, to grow closer to you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, um, Lord, really speak to us, Lord, through uh, this this event in Peter's life that I, I truly believe was sort of um, the, the turning point in his life. I pray that you would help us to uh, to, to feel the pain of uh, his failure and um, to, to learn from it, Lord. For we each will fail you, we each will fall short, and and Lord, we just humble ourselves before you, um, grateful, Lord, that it's because of your grace that we have a relationship with you. It's because of your mercy and your kindness and your patience with us. And so, Father, we pray that we would learn uh, through Peter's failure here. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start reading up in verse 54. <clears throat> Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Down to verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And, she, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he began to weep. Father, we do thank you again for the story. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would uh, just lead us now, Lord. Help us to, to, to feel the story. Help us to imagine uh, this night, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, um, so this story is really a story of, of, of brokenness, and in brokenness that there's, there's, there's power in brokenness, that God can do really amazing things within our being broken before him. Um, I'm at like the 20-year mark of, of in my life where I experience real brokenness before God. Um, I... It, it was between 1996 and 2000 that I that I came to Christ and and began to sort of explore Christianity. I do think that I was sincere during that that four year window, but at the at sort of the end of the four years, I I was I had a a moment. Um, really, what happened? My buddy got married, and at his at his uh, at his wedding. I, I toasted, and then I, I drank more than I desired to drink. And 
I um, just so convicted and, and really felt convicted that I was like a hypocrite, that I was living a worldly life and trying to do the Christian thing. And, and so I found myself in an unlikely place at SEAL Team 3, and I, you know, I, was, I was about to deploy, so I decided I'd be homeless for a little while to make some money, extra money. And so I was living in the ca- my cage at SEAL Team 3, and I, I just remember being in this concrete building, just absolutely broken and and sort of with the uh, kind of wrestling with God saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I can't go on living the Christian life. The things that I see in the scriptures, like I'm not experiencing that in my own life. And the things I'm doing, I'm not representing you well. And, and so I remember not surrendering in the sense of that I was giving my life to the Lord, but surrendering in that I, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. So the path that I'm going to go on is the secular path. But, but in that brokenness, I remember really crying out, like, I really do want to follow you, but I can't, and, and I need your help, was sort of the, the, the cry. And, I, and as I reflect back on that moment, I remember in that moment, it was, a ter- it was a terrible time. It hurt so bad, and it was so painful, and it was just really uncomfortable. I felt like a failure. I felt like I had let God down yet again, and... Um, but as you know, 20 years has gone by now, because um, I think it was in August of 2000 when that moment happened, um, when I look back, I see that that moment was actually the, the moment when God really got a hold of my life. And in my brokenness, uh, he began to restore me and, and began to, to use me and to prepare me for usefulness. And so now when I look back, I really think back to that moment in you know, my little cage at SEAL Team 3 is sort of like a beautiful moment. And it's so easy to come to the story of Peter's failure and to go, oh, P- Peter, you did it again. You just blew it. But I'm convinced that at this moment in Peter's life that this is his, his low. This is his rock bottom. And... In this moment, I believe that this is the, that, that anchoring point in his life that Jesus used um, to, to turn Peter into the new Peter that we know throughout the, the New Testament, this great leader um, who led the early church following the resurrection of Christ. And so my prayer is that as we go through the story, we would see this and we would be encouraged in our own failures um, so that we would grow closer to Christ and allow him to grab hold of our lives And so here we are, verse 66. Uh, We read, um, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, uh, seeing Peter warming himself. And so kind of going back to verse 54 to uh, get our bearings straight of of where we are in this story, Uh, Jesus had been taken into custody at Gethsemane. They had brought him in um, to to the high priest. We looked at this last week, and and so it's, it's speculated that um, the events that happened last week and this week go from probably two in the morning to about you know five or six in the morning till till daybreak. These the story that we're looking at today and the story that we looked at last week it, it they're running concurrently with one another, and so Jesus is now in custody. Uh, John tells us that he had access to the high priest and they there was a relationship there, so he was able to get. Uh, Peter in there. Um, I can't remember if John stuck around or not, but we know that Peter's access was granted through his relationship with John. He finds himself in in the courtyard. Now, this house was 
um, built on sort of a, a, a cliff, like a, a hillside. And so if you can imagine a house, we, we have them a lot in San Diego where you, know, you can almost walk in. When you walk in at what feels like ground level, you're really on the third floor, and then you can kind of go downstairs, or you could walk in at ground floor, but you're really at this, that level number two, and there's an upstairs and there's a downstairs. And if I have a three-story house in my mind, um, this would be like the courtyard would be on the bottom floor, like the bottom floor of all of this. And so Peter's down there with the officers. It's, 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 it's early morning. It's cold. Peter's warming, warming himself there. And we see that one of the servant girls of the high priest, she came and she, she sees this whole scene. Um, <clears throat> this, this first word scene, it's, it's just kind of like she notices the crowd. But we're told a second word that she looked at him. And so it goes from like glancing, okay, there's some people there and going, I don't know that. Like kind of like, I don't know that guy. And, and then you really, you really look and you, you take it in. I, I think of, you know, being from San Diego, we have a lot of bonfires at the beach and you can go with a group of people that you know. And when it gets dark and the fire's going, you can't tell like, who is that over there? And you get, you start really looking at her Oh, it's Anna. That's my wife. I didn't even recognize her from, you know, being far away, and and so this word looked the second one. So seeing Peter, and then she looked at him. This word looked from Lunida, which is a, a lexicon. It says to direct one's vision and attention to a particular object, to look straight at, to look directly at. So this girl walks in. She sees the crowd. She sees Peter. And it's not like she stops. It's like she's like, if I'm looking at Dave, like really going, yeah, that's Dave. I'm like, like making eye contact. He can see me. I can see him. We're connecting. We know. It's not just like a glance. Like right now I can see Dave. This is, a, this is the, she looked at him and she gathered that it was him. And she immediately says, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. So there's this huge commotion. They, they've been, it's the holiday. It's, this isn't normal business hours. There's this big commotion where they take Jesus into custody. This trial's going on. In, in the midst of this early thing, this girl's like, you're, you're one of them. You're with Jesus of Nazarene. I don't know if she was in the resting party or she saw them all come in. I don't know how she connected uh, Peter to Jesus, but she knows that Peter is known to being with Jesus. Maybe it had been a long week and she saw the teaching in the courtyard. Who knows? But verse 68, we're told that, but he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And so denial number one, I, I, uh, I, I, for the life of me, I can't come up with a good story. I've no, I, I know I've, I've done enough things in my life that I've snuck into places and got busted where you try to like, you know, tap, tap dance your way out of it. Like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm with the band, actually. Like, I'm good, we're good to go. And you just sort of act like you have some authority. And, and, and so this first one, I don't think that this is like a really a conscientious, sort of like that he willfully uh, denies Jesus. I think that he's there. There's a lot of adrenaline. There's a lot of fear. He's by the fire. All of a sudden, he, he, we know from John that Peter wouldn't have had access to this courtyard. So he's there by permission and a relationship, and we're, there's no mention of John at this point. And so the girl comes up like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I, don't, like I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand what you're saying. And, and then he moves to the porch. So, so the, 
geographically, we're moving sort of from the bottom courtyard to the middle level or the next level up. And we know from the porch, sort of from looking at the other gospels, that this other porch gave um, Peter and Jesus the vantage point where they could each see each other. We know that Peter at the porch now has a line of sight on Jesus. And he just kind of blows off the servant girl, gets up here, and goes about his, his business, or he's hoping to. Um, Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, uh, this is one of them, but again he denied it. So uh, Matthew tells us that, that this is another servant girl. It's not the same servant girl like pestering him, like tracking him down. Matthew says like another girl identifies Peter. And in this one, she's not so much talking to, to Peter, she's talking to the bystander. She's trying to get everybody's attention like, hey, this guy is one of them. He, he's, he snuck in here, and we don't get much. He, he denies it again. And it, it seems to be a little bit more aggressive. Like as we're going through, there's getting more and more aggressive. And he says, I don't even know. I don't, I, I, I don't know him. Leave me alone. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, so now the girl like got the thought into the bystander's brain and everybody's like eyeballing Peter like, who is this? Like, you are one of them. And they're saying to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean also. This, his accent would have given him away. The Galileans compared to Jerusalem, they were like the hillbillies. I, uh, I, I always laugh. So Becca Restivo, for those of you who know Becca Restivo, Rick, you, most of you know Rick Restivo. Becca Restivo, I love to death. She's, she's, I really appreciate her like honesty. She doesn't uh, treat me differently because I'm a pastor, but she very much respects me as a pastor. And so she'd moved away to Boston a few years ago. And I think it was, it's probably been a couple years now, but she'd been in Boston long enough that she had acquired the Boston accent. And so she called me. I remember I was like, I was at Ann's School of Dance, like I think waiting for Ellie or something. And, and I'm like, oh, Becca's here. I'll, I'll take the call. And she just like comes out of the gate. I couldn't understand a word she was saying. And like over 15 minutes, in this 15 minute, I don't know if it was a conversation, I was being talked at. And I could tell that she was, number one, that she was very upset. Number two, I could tell that there was a boy involved. And she didn't seem to be breathing and could be able to like exhale for a very long time because she was just going and going and going. And like 15 minutes into this, I just start laughing. And she got so mad at me. She's like, how can you be laughing at me? I'm like, Becca, I understand there's a boy involved. I understand you're mad. I really am sorry. Like, I'm here for you, but I can't understand a word you're saying. Like this Bostonian stuff, you're so irate. I, it doesn't make sense to me. And then she said a few more words. And then she said, hey, thanks for taking my call. You really helped me. And I'm like, I have no idea what I said, but you're welcome, and I'm always here for you. Uh, and, you know, like somebody from Boston that's like born and bred from Boston, you can't come to San Diego and, and try to lose your accent. You're, you're not, like we're going to be able to, to, to find you. Or if you're from this, the deep south and you have that twang, no matter how hard you try Sorry, sorry, Jim. I can see, you know, he's from the Carolinas, and you're not, he's been here probably for 40 years, and you can't, you just hear it. You can, you can, you can figure it out. And they say, you're from Galilee. We can hear it in your voice. 
And he began to curse and swear, I don't know this man, I don't know what you're talking about. So early in my Christian life, when I, when I saw this, I used to be really encouraged by it. I'm like, oh man, even the, the, the Apostle Peter started cussing. Because I read this like he was cussing. At that point in my spiritual life, I was like, you know, I'm really trying not to swear anymore. I'd really worked hard not to cuss. Still to my day, my nightmares are filled with me preaching, and I just start cussing from the pulpit. That's like my worst nightmare right now. And thankfully it hasn't happened, but I hate it when I have the nightmare and I wake up and I look at Anne and I'm like, oh good, we're not at church. Like we're not, we're not like, that was just a dream. And, and so I thought, oh, Peter struggled with profanity, so I'm struggling, so it encouraged me. But then that's, that's not what this word is. This, uh, this, this swearing, this cursing is, is to make uh, like a vow. This would be the equivalent of, you know, putting uh, your left hand on the Bible, your ra- right hand up and saying, I vow before God that I'm telling the truth. Uh, Peter's basically saying, listen, guys, I swear before God, I call on him as my witness I, uh, that I don't know Jesus. We know from Luke in chapter 22, verse 59, that, that, that these accusations, they're spread out. We know that this one comes about an hour after the first one. And just imagining the story sort of flowing simultaneously, like if this was a movie, it could be a really dramatic scene. It's possible that as, G, as Peter is standing there before these guys, like raising his hand, calling upon God as his witness, swearing to them before God, it's like that he doesn't know them. It's possible. We're definitely like in the same window of time that simultaneously what's happening is the high priest is looking at Jesus and saying, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Messiah? And so you have Jesus on the inside under oath swearing before God that he is indeed the Messiah. And it could be like as this is happening, Peter is swearing before God that he doesn't know that guy who's claiming to be the Messiah on the inside. When you think about this, this is, it's so funny because when I was struggling with was swearing, I used to think that was like the worst thing ever, like in my conviction, because that's what God was wrestling with me with. But the reality is, is what Peter did was be far more worse than if he just dropped some profanity. Like to swear before God something that isn't true and, and, and denying who Jesus is, is terrible. He's basically telling them like, may God strike me down dead right now if I don't know this guy. Grant Osborne says this, uh, Peter's three denials develop a powerful, dramatic progression as each one gets worse. Denying his knowledge of Jesus to a maidservant, denying his discipleship to a group of servants, and cursing with an oath in front of all of the bystanders. And we're told in verse 72 that immediately after he does this, a rooster crowed the second time. And as that rooster crowed, it triggered a memory in Peter's mind. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Um, so this, this week has been an exciting week for me. You know, it, during the lockdown, I, I realized in hindsight that there's been three things. There are three things that I really missed. I miss going to church. I miss getting my hair cut professionally. 
I was doing an okay job on myself, but I miss getting a haircut, and I miss going to the gym. And so this Monday, the gym opened up. And so I, I've been going to CrossFit every single day this week. By like Wednesday, I look like I got run over by a freight train. And it's like, do you think you need to take a day off? I'm like, I'm not taking a day off. I'm just going to get through the pain of going back. And <clears throat> Friday, there was something where there, you're, you're, you have to run. And it's down the south part of Colgrade. And, and you go down the driveway. Then you cut up north. And you kind of run past Grand Jettos. And you turn around. And as people get going, you're not all together. So... I was all alone, and I'm making the cut. I'm daydreaming about something, probably being exhausted and wanting to be done with the whole thing. And then on that, that, that asphalt before where the new Rite Aid is, it's all a mess. And I caught my toe on like one of the asphalts. And you know when you're falling, it's like super slow motion, and you can have a whole conversation with yourself? Well, I found myself what felt like flying through the air like Superman. And... So I remember going, oh, no, this is not good. This asphalt is, like, really, really terrible. And then I remember telling myself as I was going down, like, not the knees, not the knees. Like, keep the knees up. So I tried to, like, get my butt up a little bit more so that my knees could not take the brunt of the asphalt. And I land on my hands, and, you know, I I pop up really quick. And I go, okay, there's no blood on my hands. The quick self-inventory, I'm like, okay. And I'm like, oh, that that could have been really embarrassing. At that moment of thinking, this could be really embarrassing. I heard a sweet little lady's voice behind me saying, Gunnar, are you okay? I was, like, I was okay. But now that you said that, I know you saw the whole thing. Now I'm humiliated. Like this is, can we just not talk about this? Can we, can we move on? And the, the reason I bring this story is, I bring this up is when you read verse 72, it looks like Peter remembered, and when he remembered what Jesus said, like that, was, that was the extent of it. But there was more. Like I think Mark is trying to, to go easy on, on Peter maybe, but in Luke chapter 22, verses 61 through 62, what we read there at that moment when Peter swears before God that he doesn't know Jesus We're told that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And that word looked is the that that looked that we talked about earlier, where this is eye to eye looking. They're in a spot where they can see each other. As Peter does this, he hears the crow the the rooster crow. He then makes eye contact with Jesus. Jesus makes eye contact with him. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And so as he makes, as he makes eye contact with Jesus, it like just crumbles. I mean, crumbles. I mean, to weep bitterly, that that, that adjective is added to weeping, that, that it's just this bitter brokenness. Um, I think of when I was a kid and you get a Coke can and you could kind of apply pressure and then you could just like flick it, you know, and it would crumble on you really hard. Like all it took was that little flick to like crush the can in. Maybe it was just me, but I love doing that. And, uh, and, and it's like this eye, this eye contact of Jesus just crumbles Peter and he's, he's absolutely broken. Um, the Life Application Bible Commentary says this, about his failure. He said his bitter tears were not only because he realized that he had denied 
his Lord, the Messiah, but also because he had turned away from a very dear friend, a person who loved and taught him for three years, unable to stand up for his Lord for even 12 hours. He had failed as a disciple and as a friend. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there, and Peter's tears were of true sorrow and repentance. And I believe that in this brokenness, this moment, this, this true agony that, that Peter was feeling in this moment, I, I think this is the moment over the next few days uh, where, where John in his gospel, he links this account to John chapter, I think it's in 21, where there's by the charcoal fire and Jesus brings him into restoration and says, you know, go and feed my sheep. And, and he's restored into the ministry. And from this moment, we don't see Peter failing. Like, we just don't see him failing again. We see this, this bold and courageous man that I think that God used this broken man and made him dependent upon his grace and his strength and enabled him to, to go on into usefulness. Um, like I, I don't know if you guys have, have felt this. Uh, I, I remember when I was in that place of, of brokenness, I... One of the things that I ended up doing, I remember I got this Bible. Like it was a little bit, I had, I had read through the other Bible that I still have. And then I, I got this Bible. And then I found myself somewhere where a, a speaker spoke. And, and I wrote, um, there's a, a, in pencil in the back of my Bible, I wrote it down. And it's credited to Amy Carmichael. So I have no idea if it's a true quote or what. Like I don't know where it came from other than it's in my Bible in pencil. I wrote it there. And so it should be, it should be good because it's in my Bible. Um, but what I wrote during that window in this Bible, um, the, a person said, quoting Amy Carmichael, that if you've never heard from the word of God, you probably have never heard from the word of God. And th- there's so much truth in that, that like th- the reality is we're all going to fall short. None of, none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. None of us are going to be able to, to hold up like Jesus held up, held up. And when we stumble, when we fall, when we sin, and you have the Spirit of God within you, and he convicts you, it's terrible. But there's nothing better than that conviction from the Lord because it's from that that he brings about restoration. In a book, Messy Spirituality, uh, Mike, Don, help me say his last name. It's Yak, Yak, Yakinelli. Was that close? He gave me the thumbs up. I thought it was Yakinoli, which, you know, sounded more fun to me. But in his book, Messy Spirituality, he writes, he writes this. Spirituality is not a formula. It is not a test. It's a relationship. Spirituality is not about competency. It's about Intimacy. Spirituality is not about perfection, it is about connection. The way of the spiritual life begins where we are now in the mess of our lives, accepting the reality of our broken, flawed lives is the beginning of spirituality. Not because the spiritual life will remove our flaws, but because we let go of seeking perfection and instead seek God the one who is present in the tangledness of our lives. Spirituality is not about being fixed. It is about God's being present in this mess 
of our unfixedness. I love that quote. Um, it reminds me of King David. Um, you know, King David, who the Bible records of you know, being a man after God's own heart. Um, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 32, so it's right in the middle of your Bible. So in Psalm 32, where, we want to, where I'm going to wrap up today. But so we, you know, King David, this, this man after God's own heart, I'd heard that my, you know, for as long as I had been exposed to Christianity, but I didn't have a whole lot of Christianity. And then when I sort of started uh, auditing Christianity and, and I started reading through the Bible and you start reading about David's life, you're like, this guy's not that great. Like he's kind of, there's some pretty major moral failings in his life. Um, I, I forget who it was, but some guy I read once said that David, if you look at his life, he broke nine of the Ten Commandments and everything he did. I think the only one not recorded in Scripture is that he didn't violate the, script, the Sabbath is the only one he could come up with that you couldn't pin on David. Um, but when you read about his life, what you see is this is a guy who was broken over and over by God. And in his brokenness, I think he genuinely repents and genuinely sought God's mercy and his graciousness in his life, and, and God honored him and, and said, you're sincere in this. So in Psalm 32, this is one of the Psalms, I believe that this is, this is written like Psalm 51, sort of in the wake of Bathsheba and the confrontation of, of Nathan to him. And he writes in Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And just pausing there, like if you, through the Spirit of God, have come to understand the, the magnitude and, and the weight of your sin, where you feel that like burden and that shame and the guilt and the sorrow for your own sin, and then you encounter God who reveals enough light to you that you come to understand that through Christ he's actually forgiven you, Verse one means every, like, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When that reality hits you, you're super blessed. He goes on to say, how blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, that your sins are not credited to your account. The New Testament talks about the uh, Christ's righteousness being imputed to our account, credited to our account, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long, for night, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained as with the fever of heat of summer. When I read verses three and four, I think about the story. Um, you know, David and Bathsheba, she, she, he sees her out, you know, bathing on her balcony and he gets a view and he's king, so he... he has inappropriate relations with her. She gets pregnant. And then he's like, oh, man. Like, okay. So he brings her husband home from war. He tries to set it all up to where the guy would have a relationship with his wife so that the pregnancy could get pinned on the husband. The guy, Uriah, who, who's an honorable guy, won't go drinking. He won't go stay with his wife. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm only here to, get a, like, to talk to the king I'm not here to have a relationship with my wife. I'm not here to like drink. My guys are out at war. And so I'll do my business here and I'll go. David's like, oh, rats, like what am I gonna do? Like, and so then David sends him with a note. 
and says, hey, you go back and give this note to your commander. The gives it to the commander. The commander gets a note and says, hey, basically go into battle, press forward, and then pull everybody back but Uriah so that Uriah gets killed. And then when he gets killed, David's little plan is all worked out. And then a year later, he's confronted by the Nathan, Nathan the prophet. You guys remember the story. Nathan goes, hey, David, there's this guy out there. This little boy has, a, has, a, has just one sheep. And there's this guy who has a whole bunch of sheep. And, and uh, the guy with all the sheep took the little boy's sheep. And David, being a former shepherd, is all like fired up. And he's like, who's that guy? Let's get him. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll punish him. I'll, I'll execute him, whatever. Let's take care of business. And then Nathan looks at him and he says, David, you're the man. You took Bathsheba. And in that, we see David, I think, broken because the Spirit of God zapped him in a way that he felt it. And when I look at that story, these verses three and four, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever of heat of summer. So here during this year, like we think David's getting away with it. But there's something about the conviction of the Spirit of God that you think you're hiding your sin from everybody, but it's not. It, it, like, it's destroying your health and your, just everything about you, and we see this with David. And then in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. <clears throat> I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. You are my, um, surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And then God responds in verse 8 and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I think of, uh, you know, I always think of dogs with this. Um, You know, Rainy Ranch, one of the trainers, when we sent one of my dogs and they're trying to give me instructions about how to, now that they've trained the dog, how then to work with the dog. And I'll never, the, the, the trainer said, listen, you know when you have your dog's attention and heart when you're walking and all they're looking at is your eye. I can see this with like law enforcement canines. You can tell there can be all kinds of stuff going on and that dog is just looking at the handler, doesn't care about any distractions. And God, like this is sort of the picture of God saying, I'm going to guide you with my eye, which means that if he's going to guide you with his eye, that means you have to keep your eye on him. And, you know, since it's Father's Day, I always think about, like, the power of a parent that's upset. You can get in trouble and be in a big crowd, and a parent can look at their kid with their eyes and, like, literally, like, pull in a string, like, get over there. And if you've been the victim of this, it's like, uh uh-oh, I better, like, just get over here, and I'll just sit down because I don't want to... But God says that he wants to lead us like this, that I will counsel you and I'll lead you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have zero understanding. So he's saying, don't be hard-headed. Uh, be sensitive of spirit to me, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will, come, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones, and shout for joy, you who are upright in heart. With this picture, I think that this whole story, there's a picture of, of, of 
God's wanting to redeem us. God's wanting to to forgive us. God's wanting to, to heal us from our sins. Don't look at Peter's brokenness and this failing like it was the end. We all will fail, and God's always there to lift us back up, to forgive us, to redeem us, and to forgive us. So with that, let's stand and we'll pray and we'll sing a, we'll sing a final song. I'll let you guys guess what song we're going to sing. <laughs> the one I know, but let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the story of Peter and his failure. Um, Lord, I, um, Lord, in looking at this story, I, I can feel what he felt because I've been there in my failure and my sinfulness, there's nothing weightier than the conviction of your spirit upon us. And so, Lord, while we go through this, we acknowledge that it's not pleasant, it's not, it's not an enjoyable thing in the moment. But as we humble ourselves before you, as we uh, confess our sins, as we uh, get right with you, Lord, there's nothing greater that can happen in our lives and so, Father, I do pray for each person that's here or watching or listening, Lord, that um, you would help them to be sensitive to your spirit. Uh, Lord, if there is sin that needs to be confessed, may they confess it and get help, Lord, in walking with you. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy towards us. We thank you for your grace, which is abundant in our lives. Father, we pray that you would uh, use us. May we honor you and glorify you in all that we do, and it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen.